Let's turn to our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. I have a couple of missions to accomplish. I hesitate to say it will be a shorter than usual sermon. I don't want to be the bearer of false hope, as Adam talked about at the beginning of worship. But I'm endeavouring to make it at least a short and succinct sermon and then have on my heart for us to finish in a specific way this morning. But the most important thing we can do before we do anything else is just pray. So let's do that. Father, we just thank you for this moment in human history. There is no coincidence in your kingdom and in the purposes of your heart. For you knew us and you formed us, conceived in love before the foundation of the world. And so, Lord, as we come before you today, we acknowledge that what we really need is more of you. To see you more, to know you more. And as we behold you, to become more like you. So as we study your scripture, would the power of your spirit cause it to come alive in our hearts? Breathe your life upon these words and this moment that we have now. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done in the midst of your people. We gather with great expectancy to meet with you and to see what it is that is on your heart. For each one of us here today. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. First John chapter five, as I said, we're going to read some scriptures together, and I am endeavoring to bring this study in First John to a conclusion. Nobody say amen. I said nobody say amen. I don't get that amens when I say say amen. How does that work? But rather than introducing this by summarizing so much ground that we have covered, let me introduce it this way. How many parents have we got in the room? Lots of parents. Aren't kids a blessing? Aren't they a wonderful blessing? There's, there's very few things in life that are bearers of such joy and such frustration, <laughs> struggle and striving, all in the one package, one pint-sized package. And uh, perhaps some of the parents will agree, but, you know, I think so often parenting is just hitting the repeat button. Anyone feel like that? Everything's just like a broken record. You try to do everything you can to help these little people become responsible humans. And I actually think it would be simpler if I did record. I had a few just parental speeches and then just played them every morning before they got out of bed. Tidy up after yourself, respect others, don't forget your manners, make sure you love and, you know, all these things. You repeat. And of course, as parents, you know that there's some purple patches, isn't there, where all of a sudden the kids are are, um, well-behaved and well-mannered. And you think, what did we do? We're wonderful. And then there's other moments as well. And I've just been reflecting upon that nature as we... um, bring this particular book to a close because this is John speaking from that fatherly heart with great compassion but with great purpose to his kids reminding them and with my kids I just continue to remind them I say this is who you are this is what you're to do never forget this and there's times where they grab it and there's other times where one of them's just kicked their sister or something you know messed up somehow and you sit them down you say well why did you do that sweetheart what do they say? Like, I don't know. I don't know. How can we quickly forget, so quickly forget that which we've been told? Why did you do that? Did that make you feel better about yourself? I don't know. 
I don't know. Is this really the person you want to be and become? Is this the way you want to live your life? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, good chat. Let's move on. <laughs> Wonderful, successful parenting. But there's, there's this aspect of us as humans, isn't there, that so often we forget. So often we lose sight of what's important. So often we perhaps become confused, discouraged. And at times we don't even know why. I don't know. Why do we do that? I don't know. I don't know. And so there's a large part of this book that has been John really trying to encourage and exhort and correct and inspire his kids. And how he is going to end this book, I think, is wonderful. Look for this phrase. And we know, and we know, and we know. So what is it that we need to be reminded? Let's read together. First John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's the first one. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Number one. So that we may know that we have eternal life. And I would ask us this question, what does it mean for us to have eternal life? I think sometimes we think, well, it's just a whole lot more of this. problem is that a lot of us don't want a whole lot more of this. Is it a little bit better than this? What is it? John gives us what I think is a wonderful definition of eternal life. And if you just flick back a few verses with me, he says prior in verse 11 this is the testimony that god gave us eternal life and this life is where it's in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of god does not have life so what is the definition if you like of eternal life it's not a place it's a person it's not a place it's a person see it's not just more life it's not even just paradise a world without pain and suffering. It is a life in His presence. See, God died for us not just to forgive us of our sins, not just to say, well, now you're going to get a lot more of what you already had or a slightly better, more improved version. There'll be some golden streets and you can live in paradise. You see, He died for us because He wants to be with us forever. It's this phenomenal thought. Let me share a... It was a very hard season of life, but growing up, and most of you would know this particular story, but in my family, we uh, had a moment of tragedy when my little baby sister, there was five of us, and we lost a sister in a tragic car accident. And I still remember the day that we were walking along, uh, my brother and I were one side of the road, and my mother with, uh, at that stage, one of my younger sisters on the other side of the road, and my sister who was with us, decided she'd cross the road to be with my mother and tragically was hit. still remember the spot where it happened and she survived for some time in hospital before she passed away and went to be with the Lord. And obviously that was a difficult wrestling season. And I remembered at the age of 10 years of age, remember my mum grieving, obviously as you would as a mother, seeing your little baby girl and that experiencing that level of tragedy. But there was something that gave her comfort and I was going to call her this week but she's overseas out of phone range at the moment to to ask her whether it was a dream or a vision but I remember her sharing this is the thing that got me through and whether it was a dream or a vision I don't know but she had this this picture and there was her little baby girl in paradise but with Jesus 
And Jesus was there and just said these simple words. She's with me and she's home. She's with me and she's home. Now that didn't instantly make all the pain go away. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? If we could just take a pill and all the pain of this life disappears. But there was a reality to hang on to. That how do you define eternity? Well, for me, the more I think about that, the more I recognize that it's, it's home. That is where I'm headed. Heaven is a homecoming. Forget the paradise. I mean, that's all wonderful, but I'm going home. That is the reality to live with. So that's the first thing. John is saying, remember that you have eternal life. We talked last week about living with this burning passion for God. And yet I think the greatest passion we could ever live is only a dim reflection of the passion that he lives with for us, for you and me. We are the objects of his love. And it's a love we get to live in, not just when we go home, but we can live every day in the reality of that love now. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. See, not only is it eternal life that's coming, there's a confidence we have now. And this is a wonderful confidence, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything, he hears us. Isn't that a wonderful reality? There's a God who hears our prayers. You know, we don't have to scream and shout. We don't have to wail. And in fact, Jesus, he, he spoke very directly to his disciples. And he says, when you pray, don't pray like the Gentiles do. And they lived in a time where the Gentiles would go to the temple and they'd cut themselves and there'd be blood everywhere just in order or in, in, in vain hope that perhaps God might hear their prayers. But he's saying, you live with that confidence. There's the hope of eternity. But each and every day, you wake up in the morning and you know that there is a loving Father who is listening for your prayers. I mean, doesn't that change the way you pray? That is incredible. There's a God who hears my prayers and I can go to him with anything and everything, the stuff of life. In the midst of everything, there's a God who cares. And he says, and we know in verse 15 that... He, if he hears, which he does, in whatever we ask, we know that the request that we have, that we have the request that we've asked of him. So there's a God who listens, but there's a God who loves to answer prayer. He is willing and he is able. Verse 16. We're tracking along okay? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does, need, that does not lead to death. Now, that would be a passage that would be easier to skip over a little bit. What's John really trying to say? I think a lot of people get caught up in the side note of, well, what is he talking about with a sin that's leading or not leading to death? And I don't plan to open that particular Pandora's box because it's just a side note. Here's what John's really saying. He's saying, if you see people who are caught up in sin, what is to be your response? It's to pray. It is to pray. See, we're, we're in a time and an age where it's so easy to point. It's so easy to jump on our keyboard and post. But what if we, rather than taking either of those actions, we got on our knees before the Lord to pray? What a difference 
we would see. And I, I did have someone the last time I mentioned anything about social media and they said, look, Andrew, do you have a bit of an issue with Facebook and Twitter? Because I do from time to time, I make mention. I said, no, I don't at all. I, I hope that nobody gets that impression. Perhaps one time I'll, I'll uh, preach a message all about the, the goodness of Facebook, just to even it up, the godliness of Twitter. I'm not sure where that one would go, but <laughs> we're a very short sermon. But I do love this quote from John Piper. He says, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Did you get that? Did you catch that? Letting it settle a little. <laughs> That's a bit of an ouch moment, isn't it? Now, I've got nothing wrong with social media, but rather than wearing out our keyboards, how about we wear out our carpet before the Lord? We are surrounded in a world where there is a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that could get our angst, that could frustrate us. So quick to point and post, but let's pray. Let's pray. Let's come before the Lord. And not just praying for stuff out there, but praying for people we know. That's what he's saying. Let's pray for one another. We'll move on. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We've talked a lot about this, both the reality of what it means to be born of God, but then the reality that because we're born of God, first of all, we live in love, and then secondly, we live in victory. We do not continue in sin. Moving on, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is one of those places where the ESV doesn't do the best job with translation. The literal translation is the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And the picture literally is like a, a baby cradled asleep in the arms of the enemy. But we're not, we're not like the world. We're not in the embrace of the evil one. We are in the embrace of God. We belong to him. And again, there's these two kingdoms and there's this reality that we live in the world, but we live of God. We're not held in the grip of the enemy. We're held in the unfailing, everlasting grip of our Father because we belong to him. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come, again, we know, and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. So we know the truth and we know the, the reality of truth, which is not just a principle, it's a person. It is Jesus Christ. So let's just review what we've covered, and I know it's been very quick in my efforts to give you a short and succinct sermon. Any one of those, we could have preached a message on and continued to go for another year. I'm having mercy upon you. So we know that we have eternal life. We know that we have answered prayer. We know that we have victory over sin. We know that we belong to God, and we know that we have the truth. We know Jesus Christ. We know we know, we know. So here's the loving father of John saying, recognize who you are and never lose sight of that reality. And to me, that would have been probably a wonderful spot to end the letter, wouldn't it? I mean, that sounds pretty comprehensive. We've summarized. He's given us his fatherly talk. But there's one more verse. 
What a fascinating way this is to bring to a close his letter. Verse 21, are you ready? Because this is the last verse. We're there, we're close, very close. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, full stop. Oh. See, I think sometimes we're so used to reading, say, Paul's literature, his writing, where he has at least three attempts before he concludes. And in summary, and in conclusion, and finally, and finally again, and finally again, again, whereas John's very different. He's kind of said everything that he wants, and he just gives this rather abrasive finish. I mean, it's a fascinating finish to me. It's, it's kind of confronting, isn't it? Like try ending an email this way, or writing your Christmas cards. Love you all. Keep yourselves from idols. Bang! What is it that John's trying to tell us as he brings this to a conclusion, having reminded us of who we are? And it's a little bit like, see, I think there's this theme all the way through the service this morning. We behold his glory. We become like him as we choose to fix our eyes upon him. He's done it all. And we know you have eternal life. You have this father who loves you. He cares for you. You're going home. He's your advocate. He's the propitiation for your sins. He, he is everything. He's the truth. He's the life. So keep your eyes on him. Don't let anything distract you. Don't let anything sway you. Don't let any discouragement, any depression, don't let anything rob you of the reality. Never fall into that place of, well, why did you do that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Is that really the way you want to live your life? I don't know. Did that feel really good when you indulged in that? When you did whatever? I don't know. And John say, yes, you do. Yes, you know. Never lose sight of that picture. I want to talk just quickly about how do we do that? What's this whole thing about idols? And I think from a Western worldview, we feel a little removed from what idols even are. Here's my idol story. I remember when uh, we were traveling and it was uh, the first missionary trip we'd done to India. And when you come from a Western uh, setting, when you've grown up here your whole life, it's very... Uh, it's, it's a smorgasbord of different experiences when you travel to Asia or India. All sorts of different sights and smells and sounds that you have never... You've got no greed for it. It just is incredible. And there's so many wonderful things. I love Indian culture. But one thing that takes some getting used to is you're driving down the streets. Everywhere you go, little shops, and there's shrines that are built. So there's a shrine in front of a tree or a rock or a building with little offerings that are given there to the particular gods or the deities of the area. Very, very strange for a Western mind to, to get a handle upon. And there was this one particular day where we were traveling and we'd gone over to India to train some pastors and we had a day off. They said, look, let's, let's take you, do something fun. So I think Peter can probably remember this story. But we'd gone and spent the day traveling through this supposed uh, tiger safari to see the tigers that there was no sign or anything of. But we spent the day in the car and what they also didn't have was any sort of uh, proper bathroom facilities. So we'd gone and it was, a, it was a bumpy car ride and 
We'd been in the car for some hours and we pulled up at this little village and I just needed to go. You know when you need to go, like every bump is just painful. It's like the world is going to end. So the moment we stopped, I was out the door. I think the car was still rolling and I wasn't looking for a bathroom. I was just looking for the closest tree I could find. How many guys can relate to that? I've just got to do what I've got to do. I need some relief. So I found this tree and it was the biggest tree around and I did what I needed to do and then I turned around and I could see everybody in the party was looking at me. Some of them were in shock, some of them were in bewilderment and I came over and said, what's happened, what have I done? And they said, well you didn't realise this but that's actually the holy tree of the village. (laughs) The entire village is built around and I looked around the other side of the tree and there was a big shrine there. They said, it's just a good thing none of the villagers saw you or we would have been running for our lives. But it was this fascinating picture of idols everywhere. You know, you couldn't go to the bathroom without avoiding the idolatry. And I remember having a conversation with some of the pastors in that particular trip, sitting around and we were just talking about different things and a lot of them from different backgrounds, some from very poor areas, some had a little more wealth. And one of them had been to America. And so I was saying, well, what did you think of America? And they said in in the conversation to the effect of, oh, I I couldn't stand America. I said, why? Why couldn't you stand America? And they said, well, it was because of the idolatry. And I heard that and I thought, that's a really odd thing for a Western person to hear. You couldn't stand the idolatry of Western culture. I, I said, explain to me what you mean. And they said, well, you know, over here... People worship very openly the trees and the rocks and the God that's in everything. But he said people in the West, they worship their stuff and they worship themselves. And then they made this comment. They said, and the Christians are just as bad as everybody else. See, it's always easy to point out the idols in other people's lives, isn't it? Or in other cultural settings. It's far harder to recognize the idols in our own lives and I would say that Western culture is far more inclined towards idolatry than any other society. You cannot go to the bathroom without being confronted by idols. Idols of self, of sex, of success. We are an idolatrous generation at heart. And part of this is nothing new. It was Calvin who first said many centuries ago, the human heart is an idol factory. You see, there's this undeniable reality that everybody worships. We're built as part of humanity that is built for worship. And if ever you doubt that, just flick on your telly and watch some of the football finals. I won't ask whose teams won, but I was watching one particular game, the AFL Packed out stadium. If you've been to the MCG, it fits 100,000 people. I mean, the atmosphere is electric. And every time there's a goal or even close to a goal, the roar of the crowd. And just when you think the crowd can't get any louder, then there's another roar. And I've been there. I, you know, I, I, I understand that passion and that enthusiasm and that excitement. And then as I sat there watching the game, I thought, isn't it interesting I mean, we're here watching a little fake synthetic leather ball 
get kicked between two posts sitting on a field of grass. And the passion and enthusiasm of the crowd about what's going on. I mean, if you stand and, and just ponder for a moment the eternal significance of a game of football, it's very little. And yet how much there is a lack of enthusiasm and passion at times about worshipping the uncreated God. Fixing our eyes on that which is eternal. Now there's, there's this tension, but there's this reality that we are made to worship. God has made us as these people to be moved. It's an idle factory, but it is God's intention because we're made to worship Him. We're made to behold Him. He has created us and invited us to that which we need. In, enter, in, in fixing our gaze upon Him, we find the very thing that we were made for. And you see, we live in a world where there is a battle for our affection. There's a battle for our worship. And it really is not a question of whether we'll worship, but what will we worship? What is it that will fill our gaze and our affection? Will it be the temporary things? Will it be the things that are passing away? Will it be ourselves? Will it be our stuff? We set up little shrines in our living room, our little trinkets, that we can never take with us? Or will our lives be filled with the worship and the wonder of the living God? We were made to worship. And you see, I think we've got to, we've got to at times check our appetite. We've got to check our appetite because so often in my own life, I wonder God, and I talked a bit about this last week, where is that passion for you? Why is it that the fires have grown cold? And there can be so many different things, but so often I believe there's no hunger for God because we're already full, nibbling on the things of this world. Just a little nibble here and there, a little nibble here and there. We had this fascinating phase with our girls, and you know, talking about kids again, as parents, you want to do the best you can for kids, particularly when it comes to eating, give them all the healthy food that they need and you know, not do all of the, the pre-packaged processed stuff. But we had two girls in particular who were very, very underweight. And we were seeing doctors and specialists at different times saying, what do we do? And they said, well, here's the thing. You've got to make every calorie count. Whatever you do, keep them away from any empty calories because it will fill them up and they won't get, give them any nutrition. Keep them away from empty calories and then just lather up as much calories as you can on anything they do have. So if they're having a biscuit, slap on the butter. You know, a bit of salt and pepper. Do whatever you can. Just get as many good calories, which of course butter is. I mean, butter's from the Lord. <laughs> it didn't quite work. I was just thinking through that example. But <clears throat> get as many good calories as you can into them. Make sure they're not just nibbling on things that are worthless because they'll end up having no hunger for that which really counts. Uh, we've got to be so careful as people who have so much. And I'm, I'm not saying that we need to you know, forsake. We, we've got to be thankful for the things that God has given us. We've just got to make sure that that's not our appetite for the things of this world. That there's a burning hunger and passion in our hearts for the things that count. Not seeking the pleasures of this world, but the pleasures at His right hand. Not the wealth of this world, but the riches of 
of His grace. Our joy, our satisfaction, our self-worth is all from Him. This is who you are. That's what John's saying. Never lose sight of that. No more. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, you do. You know. Check your appetite. And one more very quickly. And we're going to end in a certain way. Check your motivations. This is something that just recently, you know, I believe that God is looking for a people whose hearts are fully his. That's what he's doing at the moment. That's what continually he is just stirring my heart to seek after him. Not with any agenda. But I want to ask you this question because this is what the Lord has reminded me of in the last season. Is there a place for seeking him in your life, a place for seeking him just for him? Do we seek him because he is attractive or do we seek him because what he has is attractive? So I had this time in my life, and this is what the Lord was reminding me of some years ago now, where I really felt like God had called me to pray and to fast. And prayer and fasting is a wonderful thing. I would encourage it. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing, but it's wonderful when God calls you to do it. And so I was like, all right, God, if that's the season we're in, I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast and I'm going to seek you and I'm going to cry out for breakthrough. And I'd gone through this season. I'd done some short fasts. I'd done some long fasts, 40-day fast, lost 20 kilos, looking for a good weight loss program. Just don't eat for a month. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was thinking, Lord, you know, it's so good that you've called me because look what I've done. I've prayed harder than anyone's prayed. I've fasted harder than anyone's fasted. I've cried out and I've sought you. And in that moment of kind of me, 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 the Lord really spoke to me and said, Andrew, you've done a great job seeking me for you, but when are you going to seek me for me? When are you going to come and recognize that you're not actually the end of the story? See, Jesus was always surrounded by people who sought him for what he could give. The disciples were always about influence. Lord, let me be on your right and your left. And one of them was the guy who wrote this particular book. He was the one. He was constantly jostling for position. Give me authority. Let me be someone of significance. Following Jesus for his own motivations. Others crowded around to seek him for healing. They all had their own agenda and motivations. But there was one woman, wasn't there, who sought Jesus out just for what she could give. And she poured out her worship. The alabaster box of perfume upon the feet of Jesus. No agenda other than to give an extravagant place of worship is there a place in your life for seeking jesus just for him how much of your prayer life revolves if you're honest around you and i want you to bear this in mind there are seasons where god calls us and he does call me at times to pray and to press in for certain things god i'm praying for this i'm praying for breakthrough i'm praying to see this i'm not saying that never happens i'm just saying where is the place in your life of seeking him, not for what he can do, but just for who he is. Because if we're just seeking the gifts and not the giver, that's purely another form of idolatry. So I want to get the worship team to come back up.
I want to finish just with one quick story from Scripture, and then I'd love to invite us just to have a time of worship. And I'll explain how we're going to do that in just a moment. But there's this story in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, very well-known story. There's two sisters. There's Mary. There's Martha. And it says Jesus is passing through the area, and Martha calls out. She says, Jesus, Jesus, would you, would you come in? Come, come and hang out with us. And so Jesus consents. He says, okay, yep, we'll, we'll go to your house. And you gather that perhaps this has been a little unexpected. Perhaps Martha hasn't done the, uh, the amount of preparation that she would like to have done. But she seems to be frenetically doing things. Jesus is here. Quick, we've got to make sure the house is right. We've got to get out the best china. We've got to make sure all everything that we can do is absolutely perfect. And Luke puts this detail in, in verse 40. It says, Martha was distracted. She was distracted by all the preparations, by all the things that she needed to do. Now, if there's one word that I could find, perhaps more than any other, that defines this generation, it's often a distracted generation. We're caught up in so many different things. But how many of those different things actually matter? You can see as Martha, she's distracted and, and distracted just becomes annoyance. And there's Mary and Jesus is here. And all Mary's doing, she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's thinking, can't she see? Can't she see all that, these, all that needs to be done, everything that needs to happen? And there she is. She's just lapping up Jesus' words. She's just gazing into his face. And eventually Martha has enough and she goes and she speaks to Jesus. And it says in verse 41, the Lord answers her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Anyone feeling a little anxious and troubled about many things? Well, here is Jesus' response, and this is the invitation for us this morning. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is important. Some translations say one thing is necessary. There's only one thing here that really matters. There's only one thing that counts. Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me. I am here. I am the one you need. Will you just stop being so distracted? Stop being so moved by everything that is going on around you. And would you choose the one thing that matters? Choose me. Come and sit at my feet. Come and fix your eyes upon me again. This is the invitation for us this morning. There's a place where the pursuit of Him, for His sake, it not only becomes the greatest priority, it becomes the only priority. It's one on a list of one. And you watch as we choose that, as we choose the one thing, how everything else in our lives flows out of that place. This is what Jesus, I believe, is he's stirring it in my heart, but he's stirring it in our hearts that we would be a people who choose the one thing, who come back to that place where our hearts 
are fully His. Well, there's nothing else. I mean, and the ridiculous thing is nothing else satisfies. You can enjoy a game of football, and that's fantastic, but how long is the high going to last for? Maybe if you win the grand final, it might last for a little while. But there's no satisfaction to be found there. And we're so consumed and so driven people who give our worship to so many things that don't even matter at all. And we forget the importance of just coming to sit at His feet, to gaze upon His beauty. And as we fix our eyes upon Him, we look away from the the temporary, the, the stuff that doesn't really matter. We look into his eyes of love and mercy. And we just remember not only who he is, but who we are. That we're going home. That he is with us. That he holds us so tightly. That he hears our prayers. That he loves us. remember who he is and we remember who we are so we're going to worship the worship team is just going to lead us and the service is is finished here and you just do it in whatever way you want to do the the altar is open here and you know i just had that sense of inviting anybody who wanted to to just come and kneel before him there's something about you can worship in your seat and that's fine but there's something about at times just responding in a physical action I just I can't pray sitting down I know people can do that I can't I've got to kneel I've got to stand I've got to physically respond in some way others don't and that's fine but the invitation is there if you want to just come and just kneel in his presence if you want to get a a cushion and just lie down but that's Lord that's my prayer this morning that we'd behold you afresh that we look full into your face of love and mercy and kindness. Look away from the distractions and the stuff. That as we behold you, we would be transformed from glory to glory. That we'd remember who you are, the reality of the God that we worship. So just come, Lord. We, we give you permission to capture our hearts again. We've prayed already, but Lord, I just ask that there would be no no distractions, that there'd be nothing that would capture our gaze away from the beauty of you. And Lord, where we've got to lay down idols, where we've got to lay down stuff, where we've got to just get rid of baggage, Lord, give us the grace to just do that this morning. Lord, I ask even in this moment, capture our affection again, that we would, that we would rise, that we would leave this morning as, as ones with that, that burning passion to live for the one thing, the one thing that matters, lives that worship you, Jesus. That's my prayer.